God in heaven this morning, I'm choked up with emotion just to hear the praises to you, to think about what you've done for us. And I I ask that you will bless us now, that you'll um, inspire us, that you'll uh, speak to us, that you'll move our hearts in a a new and um, blessed way. So speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. When two people fall in love, they have two options. One option is to break up, and the other option is to go to the next level, the next stage of a relationship. If you're just dating, then you got to go to engagement and then marriage. Now, fellas, and I was talking to Andrew's Academy this morning because I think a lot of these guys have uh, proposals on the not-so-distant horizon, a few years down the road maybe, but you're already thinking about it. This guy says, no way, not a chance. (laughs) Well, let me tell you, young man, these women have already thought about their wedding day, so be prepared. Think about this. So proposals are so intense. You've got to be creative. You've got to be thoughtful. You've all been to basketball games, and you've seen on the big screen the proposals. The guy gets down on one knee. The only ones you remember, though, are the ones where the girl says no and goes crying and screaming out of the arena. You've seen those before. Or you've watched on Facebook or, or Instagram these proposals that are so dramatic and creative, and it puts a lot of pressure on the fellas these days to come up with something that's so sentimental and meaningful that it just woos the girl into saying yes, even if they don't like the guy. Yeah. And the best proposals are the ones where you know the answer already. And if you don't know the answer already, maybe you should rethink proposing. Not too long ago, in fact, it was just about a year ago, there was a lovely couple in Austria, and uh, they were, had been dating for a while, and he knew it was time to ask her for marriage, to, to propose to her. And so he had it all planned out. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He went up to uh, the top of Falkert Mountain right there in Austria. He had uh, warm winter clothes because it was snowy. He had the ring. She had no idea. Maybe he had candles and roses, or you know, you got to go next level with this stuff these days. Uh, maybe he had a watch for some of you old school Adventists. That's cool too. He was prepared. He was ready. I'm going to get fired, aren't I? I'm I'm getting an email for that one. (laughs) They get to this top, this overlook, and they're looking just beautiful, snowy mountaintops everywhere. Down below, it's gorgeous. There's a few people walking by, and he's thinking, this is the right time. A little icy up here, but we'll be all right. And so right there on the edge of this beautiful overlook, he kneels down, and he says, will you marry me? And she's so excited, she begins to jump up and down, and she slips. Yeah. Again? <laughs> she's heard this story. <laughs> I wouldn't tell you guys if she died, so like, just relax. She falls 650 feet down and lands in a snowbank. As she falls, as she's saying, yes! The newly fianced groom, he says, he reaches out to grab her and he falls too. He ends up 50 feet down on a cliff. They both survive and they have fallen head over heels in love and in marriage. (laughs) They are happily married. Proposals. It's the first piece of that commitment that happens in a relationship where you say, yes, I'll be your fiance. After the proposal commitment comes the next step. That's the marriage commitment. And weddings, they're all so similar. Uh, everybody has a lot of different things you put in them. Some, some do fancy stuff, you know, like uh, 
that I've seen communion happen at weddings. I've seen the unity of, can, of unity candle, of course. You know, two lives, two loves uniting into one flame. Um, I've seen this is a little weird. Of course, if you've done it, then it's definitely not weird at all. <laughs> uh, I saw one couple that took a glass jar and they took different colored sand and they poured it into this little jar that they put on their mantle like an urn. <laughs> they look at it once in a while. They love their marriage up there on the mantle. Some, some uh, couples go old school and they, they go with that, that, that phrase, uh, I messed it up real bad in first service. I think it's having something new, something old. Am I saying it right? Something bar... I got it messed up, yeah. I, guys don't know this. Did you hear how none of the guys were saying this? It was all women. They, we often do this stuff, but there's one part of wedding ceremonies that is always the same. It happens in every wedding, and it's the vows. There are always vows in a wedding. Two lives being committed to each other forever, and we speak words to each other saying we will be there forever and ever. Some are handwritten, some are memorized, some are typed out, some are just cried through as the groom is crying it out. But there's always vows. And if you were at a wedding, and the pastor was there, and he was having the bride go first, and he was reciting these vows, and she was responding to them, and he, he said, will you forever and always till death do you part through sickness and hell, through uh, lots of money, through no money, no matter what, do you commit to this man? And she's gazing deeply into his eyes with tears there, and he says, will you? And she says, I don't know. Maybe. If you're leaning on the wall and the light switch back there, <laughs> we'll get it on. Pastor Tim's got it under control. I'll keep going anyway. If you're online, you can't see me, just listen. It's all good. Hey! <laughs> So if the girl said, well, I don't know, it just depends, I mean, like, like, like I don't know who I'm going to meet, and so, like, if somebody's cooler than you, or better looking than you, or has more money than you, like, I mean, I don't know, like, how am I supposed to commit to something I don't know already? What would the groom do? Do you think he would say, hold up, wait a minute, <laughs> Let, let's come back in a, in a few years and revisit this commitment thing, or do you think that he would say, I love this girl no matter what? And even if she's a cheating wife, I'm still going to marry her. You know, all throughout the Bible, the bride of Christ, the church, that's you and me, we are known as the cheating bride, the cheating wife. All throughout Scripture, whether it's Moses' time or, or David's time or Nehemiah's time or all throughout our we are the bride, and we are cheaters. In fact, in Ezekiel, God says some very blunt and hard-to-hear words as he describes his bride. Here's what it says in Ezekiel chapter 16. You'll see it on the screen here. There it is. Here's what God says. I believe he says it with tears in his voice. He says this. You are an adulterous wife. You prefer strangers to your own husband. Man, and as that sinks in, I want to take you to the proposal of Christ to the church every single time that we have communion. 
It's a powerful story that you've heard a million different times, but I think it's powerful enough to read it again today. In fact, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 22. If you don't have a Bible, maybe this is your first time in a church ever and you didn't have, don't have a Bible, don't even know what a Bible is, there's a blue book in front of you and you can follow along on page 746. It's the same words that I'll be reading today. I think you'll want to read it with your own eyes because if you listen, you might zone out a little bit. As I was walking around this morning at about 11.10, seeing, shaking hands and whatnot, this one guy greeted me with a giant yawn and I thought, dude, you're not going to make it today, man. We haven't even started. So Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 7, we'll read Luke's words about what happened at the Passover. Here's what my Bible says. Verse 7. Then the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. And we pause there in that awkward part of this passage to talk about what's happening there. So put yourself in the, the shoes of the disciples. They're there at the room. They're with Jesus. They're in the, somebody's bonus room in their house above the garage. It's got some bean bags and a TV on the side. And they're there and they've got the bread and they've got the grape juice and they're sitting around the table. Well, Jewish tradition makes this mean so much more. I mean, oftentimes we'll read scripture and we'll say, well, that's a cool story, but without the context in the Jewish history, it means not quite as much. So you get the Jewish history and it means so much more. So here's the deal. At Passover time, oftentimes they would drink not one, not two, not three, but four different cups of juice. Same cup, just refilled four times. I wonder who went around and filled up the cups, or maybe they just had a, a big bottle of Welch's on the table there, and they'd fill it up each time they, they, they drink. Four different times, four different cupfuls of, of juice that they would drink. Here are the four different cups, because they're meaningful. The first one was the cup of sanctification, and they would drink this cup, and as they would drink this cup, they would think, this is the beginning of Sabbath, this is the purity time, this is cleanliness, this is Jesus' sanctification and cleanness for me. They'd fill up their cup again, and they'd go to the next one, which was the cup of deliverance. They'd look all the way back to when the Hebrews were in Egypt. They'd see the plagues that, that came as the angel of death went over the, uh, the, 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 all of Egypt, and only the people that had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost were saved. And they would think, when will we be delivered? When will we have freedom? 
They'd fill their cup again and they'd drink the next one. The cup of redemption, this is the most important one. This is the one on where all life and death hinges. This is the cup that we read about every time we have communion. It's the third cup, the cup of the Savior, the cup of salvation, the cup of redemption. This is the one that Jesus holds up when he says, drink all of it, this one right here. And the fourth cup is the last cup. It's the cup of celebration. It's the Hallel cup. That's where we get hallelujah. We're praising. That's why we say hallelujah when we are touched by music and we rejoice in who God is. And he drinks these four cups. And what the disciples hear is something completely different than you and I would hear. Because as Jesus passes that third cup and he says, drink this cup, take my cup, that I've got to be broken for. Take this cup and drink it. They are now understanding that Jesus is the one that's going to die, that he's the Messiah. But it's even more than that because as Jesus says, take my cup, they're hearing him propose to them. This kind of word, this kind of verbiage is not weird during this time. A young man that wants to marry his, his girlfriend would use this kind of language. In fact, he would go to her, his girlfriend's father and he would, he would bring a gift, not to buy her as a wife, but to buy the opportunity to actually propose to her. And so he would go to the father and he would say, hey, um, I would like to ask your wife's hand in marriage. And if the father said yes, then the father would arrange this big feast with cousins and aunts and uncles and, and everybody, the whole family's around the table. And at some point in that meal, the, the, the boy, the young man that wants to propose, he would take his cup and he would slide it across the table to his to-be bride and he would say, please take my cup, will you marry me? And it's her turn to respond to that invitation. Would she take and drink from this cup as a response that says, yes, I will, or would she not? And as Jesus slides the cup across the table to the Disciples, he says, will you marry me? It's the same for us. He says, take and drink. What even blows my mind more than this, this cool Jewish culture tradition thing is the fact that Jesus knew that the people around that table were cheaters. He knew that they were going to deny him, that they were going to run from him, that they didn't believe that he had power over death and he still proposed to them. It's crazy to think that all the way down history until today, uh, a room full of people that are adulterous Christians and disciples of Jesus, cheaters, and yet Jesus still says, will you marry me? And even in the face of knowing all this, Jesus still proposes to you and me. And I love how Paul summarizes this in Romans chapter five. Here's what he says. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. He knew it, and he did it anyway because that's what the love of God really looks like. You know, this morning we have a really cool opportunity to take a literal cup of juice and respond to Jesus' proposal to you and me. But before we have communion, before we take that cup, we have the opportunity to do foot washing if this is your first time in a Seventh-day Adventist church, I'm really glad you're here. Uh, but we do something before we take communion, and that is we do foot washing, which is the following in the footsteps of Jesus as he washed the feet of his disciples before communion as well. It's like a rebaptism. It's a time where we get to say, God, um, I have sin in my life, and I want you to take it from me. I repent. Please clean me again. Rebaptize me. 
And so we will do that, and then we'll come back in the sanctuary to, to have communion together. So I'll encourage you, if you're on this side of the sanctuary, my right, your left, to, as you exit the sanctuary, go through the doors to the right. There are Sabbath schools, rooms four and six that are available, and there's a few places out in the lobby as well. If you're on this side of the sanctuary, I encourage you to leave the sanctuary and go to the left, go down the hallway to rooms 24 and 25. There are two big classrooms there ready, and then there's a few in the lobby as well. If you choose not to participate in the foot washing, that's okay too, but you can stay here and we will uh, have communion shortly. Um, those of you that are longtime members, I'd encourage you to look around to find someone that may not have a partner in this and, 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 and invite them to be a part of your family as we do this. So at this time, you're welcome to exit for foot washing.